CPC uh, has the privilege of hosting no few organizations uh, here in this community, uh, one of which that uh, meets here on a regular basis is a Cub Scout troop, a Weeblos uh, chapter that meets here. Um, their motto, you may know this, is be prepared. That's the general scout motto, be prepared. It's kind of re reminiscent, makes me think back to my own brief, very brief experience with the Weeblos many, many years ago. I, I did actually attend a, a few meetings, just a smattering of them. I did go uh, on a camping trip. Um, it was a camping trip where they paired me with a bully uh, from my school, stuck us in a leaky, old, dry-rotted tent, where I endured with this guy one of the longest nights of my life in the rain. Um, I don't mean this as a, as a knock on the Weeblos as an organization, and I'm not calling into question our hosting them. Uh, I will just say that uh, I was not prepared, <laughs> and I was done. <laughs> that was it. That was my, my experience as, as a Weeblo. Um, the reason I bring this up is that uh, Jesus would, he calls us to follow him and he would not have us to be unprepared. He calls us to follow him and he would not have us to be unprepared. And towards that end, he gives us in the gospel records these glimpses of ordinary people having extraordinary encounters with him that we then would not be unprepared. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, uh, I'm going to start in verse 18 and read on through verse 26. Matthew 9, if you're trying to find that, that's the first of the books of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, we are in that first one, in that, that foursome, uh, Matthew chapter 9, and like I said, we're going to start in verse 18 and read on down through verse 26. So follow along silently now in your, as I read. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him and his, with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, these are extraordinary events, uh, things being recorded here. Um, if we had seen them, uh, we would have to have walked away Amazed. This is astonishing. What does it tell us? What is it saying about you, about us, 
about our need for you and how you have come for us and what that would then mean to to follow you. We, we ask that you would speak to our hearts. We are in more need than we know of uh, shaping, of teaching, of hearts, soul, spirit training. And we ask that you would do that now in such a way, in such a deep, profound way, uh, that not a single one of us here in this room would leave this place as we came in. We ask this in your name. Amen. So one of the joys and privileges that I have as a pastor is from time to time to do premarital counseling. And one of the ways that, that I look at that is to be something, to serve in that capacity as something like a travel advisor. That is to say that I recognize that this, this young, starry-eyed couple uh, sitting there at the table with me, uh, they need to, to know some things. They need to know some things about the places and the customs and the practices of this strange land that they've heard about, that they think they know about, but they actually know nothing about. Um, that they, at some point in, in the near future, are entering into. And what I want to do is I want to help them to anticipate the joys and the sorrows, the uh, highs and the lows, the conflicts and the crises, the disappointments and the discouragements that not might come, but will come. And, and my desire, of course, is, is, is not to temper or destroy their expectations, but to shape them. To help them to see that, that maybe, by God's grace, this thing might turn out in such a way, if they hang in there, could prove to have an exceeding, what I'll call an exceeding effect, beyond what they are envisioning. Well, all right, our, our text here in Matthew 9. It's helpful to know the, the context of the text. Um, what you have going on here is uh, a social occasion. If you read back a few verses in Matthew 9, you see that Matthew has just made the decision to follow Christ, to, to be a disciple of uh, this Jesus. Uh, he has then called and invited his friends to come over to his house. Jesus and his disciples are there at what you could call a dinner party of, of sorts. That then attracts the attention of some other folks there in the town of Capernaum. Some of the Pharisees come. Some disciples of John the Baptist come. That sets in motion a series of questions and concerns and dialogue and discussion about some various things. And this discussion is then interrupted, as we come to our text today, interrupted by a guy who comes in with a desperate need on his heart. That then sets in motion a series of events where they come to meet an another person in the village, a woman who has also a, a, a desperate need. And in the course of all of this, what we come to learn are some astonishing things about Jesus. I mean, really, when, when, you're, when you're hearing this and seeing this and, and thinking about it and processing and letting it sort of settle in, I mean, what you're, we're coming to see here is that Jesus just blows up our expectations. He, he defies our, our expectations. What we're learning here, if we would have but the, the eyes and ears to see, is that his is what I'll call an exceeding love. The love of Jesus is an exceeding love that we must then let shape our expectations. That's where I'm going with this. The love of Jesus is an exceeding love and we must let that shape our expectations. What do I mean by that when I say that his is an exceeding love? You can see there on your outline uh, the three points where we're heading here. 
The three ways, at least these ways, it's at least these ways that this exceeding nature of his love manifests itself in, in this text. And that is, firstly, it, his love is exceeding in its power. Secondly, is it, it is, his love is exceeding in its kindness. And then thirdly, we see it is exceeding in its mystery. And we need to, to know all three of those things in some sort of balanced fashion if we're to have our expectations are right in what it means to follow him. So let's let's look at these in turn. First, we see that the love of Jesus is exceeding in power. Now, this is probably the most obvious. I mean, when you consider the nature of the, the miracles, the what is what it is that's transpiring here in the lives of these two people just within a very short amount of time there that day. Let's just think for a minute about the wonder of what has happened. The wonder, the shocking wonder of what it is that has taken place. You know, some people want to dismiss this. Some critics through the years have said, oh no, you just need to understand that, you know, I mean, these are really just coincidences and it's just written in sort of a way with a, a, a positive sheen to make Jesus look great and the church look great and Christianity look different and all that. It, that, that, that no, you can't really count on that. It's just coincidences or there's tricks that Jesus was a trickster. He was a magician of, of some kind, kind of like on a David Copperfield sort of way, um, or, or just really in playing into all of that, that, you know, you need to understand that ancient people were just gullible. Ancient people, this was what they were accustomed, this is what they were thinking was going to happen, and this, so they, they, they saw, they felt, they knew, they experienced what they were expecting. And I would just say, to that sort of interpretation of a text like this, that that is just manifesting a profound failure to read and think critically. Let's look at the last verse that, that sums up what happens as a result of these events. Verse 26, and the report of this went through all that district. Why? Why did the report of all of this go just like a, a blaze through that district? Because this was not, this was no more normal for them than it is for us. This sort of thing. Okay? It really wasn't in any way, shape, or, or form. So that, that then said, let's just establish the fact this actually happened. Then what can we learn from this, at least at, at this level, at least the, you know, in terms of the power that we're seeing manifested here, that, that what we see is that the, the Creator God in the flesh, Jesus, is fully capable as, as the designer and maker of all things. He can restore and remake and repair any and everything he so chooses. Because he can. And in fact, if you think in terms of what you see there towards the end of this passage, it is as easy for him to raise the dead as it might be for us to rouse a sleeping person. And in fact, that is pointing to something that's going to happen in a climactic sense one day. That's the nature of the power we're, we're, we're dealing with here when we're looking at, at Jesus. So, okay, so that's, that's the what happened. How did it happen? That's the wonder of what happened. What about the means of what happened here? And I just want to look at these two cases just real quickly and just kind of unpack that. Verse 22, uh, Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well, or... From that moment, she was made well. Skipping down, uh, well, let's just keep reading. Verse 23, And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, 
He said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. So which is it? How does this happen? Is it because of faith, or is it because of Jesus' power? Which one is it? You read in verse 22, it's the faith. You keep reading, it's apparently Jesus' power. So which one is it? It's actually both. You don't really need to pick and choose. It's actually both. Now, please don't misunderstand. Faith in and of itself has no power whatsoever. I don't care how many Disney movies you've watched. Faith in and of itself, i just got to believe, right? Um, faith in and of itself has no power. Faith, as understood here in a biblical context, is a looking to, trusting in, relying on the one who is power. God himself in the flesh, Jesus. So, okay, well then, hmm, uh, what, how, how much faith then do I need to have? How, how strong does my faith then need to be? Well, you see, again, that's a misunderstanding. It's not about the amount of faith that you have. It's not about the maturity of the faith that you have. It's not about the tenacity of faith that you have. It's about the object of your faith. Who is it in? And here we see the necessity of having our faith put in this one whose love is exceeding in power, Jesus. Now, I just want to say a couple of things here uh, on this. First is, I know, and this brings up you know, how faith plays into God working. Sadly, a lot of people have been told through the years, you know what? X didn't happen. And by the way, I mean by X, I mean like what you wanted didn't come to pass because you doubted. Because your faith wasn't strong enough for that to happen. Now, I just want to say very plainly here, that is a gross misreading of the Bible. And it is a horrible thing to say to someone. It is profoundly untrue. That is just not in accordance with what the scriptures say. That's the first thing I just want to be just say it straight out. With that, we can afford to look to Jesus for great things. Just look at the examples, the stories of these two people and what took place in their lives and what he did in their lives. It is possible to look to Jesus to do great things. But what, I, what that then means is that in, with Christ, there is never a time to give up hope. With Christ, there is never a time in which we can despair or should. Because His is an exceeding love, a love that is exceeding in power. And we ought to let that shape our expectations. Now, there's more to say. Please, you know, don't just sign off now with just point one. But that has to be said. His is a love that is exceeding in power. Now, the second thing, quickly following up on that, is his is a love that is exceeding in kindness. And that might show itself just as powerfully, if you're just reading the text straight out, as the first point. The exceeding in power is exceeding in, in, in kindness and the mercy and the grace that's manifested here towards these two people. Jairus, that's we know from uh, uh, other the, the parallel passages that we see in Mark and in Luke's Gospel. This man's name is, 
his, his name was Jairus. Uh, he comes to Jesus with just a desperate, desperate need. We know that he is a synagogue, not just a ruler in general, but the ruler of the local synagogue there, which means that he is a man of power and influence and standing in the community, which means squat. That's a deep theological term. It means nothing in, ter- in the face of death and disease. His power, influence, and standing in the community it means absolutely nothing when it comes to his daughter's plight except maybe increasing frustration because he's not used to this, being so helpless. The woman, picking up there, um, I'll just back up, read verse, uh, I didn't read verse 18. Let me read that regarding Jairus. But while he was saying these things, he gets something of the helplessness here. Uh, To them, behold, a ruler, this is Jairus, came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come. Lay your hand on her and she will live. I want to talk more about that here in a minute. You keep reading, we learn about this woman whose name we don't know. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For he said, she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And what do we know about her? That she was anemic? She is weak? Twelve years of this hemorrhaging. But not, not just that, as though that's not bad enough. In that culture, in that day, in that spiritual context, she's going to be regarded as ceremonially unclean. Which then means she is regarded by the people in the town as untouchable. I mean, not just in a figurative sense, but literally. Untouchable, unapproachable, isolated, A social outcast. That's what this means for her. As though the physical pain and struggle and angst of all that wasn't enough, you've got the emotional, psychological, relational, spiritual issues coming to play in all of that as well. So, both these people, Jairus and this woman, are coming to Jesus with desperate need. And in his response to them, we see his exceeding kindness. But, We see that exceeding kindness ramped up all the more in how it's not just in desperate need they come. It's with defective faith. When you really drill down and think about what's going on here, what they say and how they say and and all that. Jairus, let's look at him. Yes, yes. He does come and he kneels. And most commentators go on record as saying that, you know, this is probably not... An expression of worship, like with the Magi kneeling there before Jesus in chapter 2. But this is more an expression of honor, a cultural sense of of respect towards this rabbi, a man of power, apparently. I mean, obviously, that's how he regards him, because he's come asking for healing. So, yes, he, he kneels, he bows, and he pleads. And he doesn't do so behind a closed door. He does so publicly. And again, he's a ruler, a ruler of the synagogue. And he's doing this, you know, in a context of conflict already with other authorities in the, in the community. And so, yes, he kneels and he pleads and he does so publicly. But that said, it was likely him that told the mourners to go to his house. You understand? He's hedging his bets. In addition to that, if you think back to what we read in chapter 8 about the centurion and his pleading for Jesus to heal his servant, that man knew from the start Jesus did not need to be on the premises and on the scene. 
Jairus seems to be insisting you've got to be there to do something. So it seems that Jairus, yes, he believes, but his belief is weak and quivering and shaking. The woman, yes, absolutely. She comes, she seeks Jesus out. She's willing to just, you know, against all protocol, she goes into that crowd. She reaches out and grabs hold of Jesus' garment. That's absolutely true. But you need to know something about the mentality and the, the, the ideas and of, of beliefs of the time. That men of healing men, as she apparently regards Jesus, uh, it was something of a mechanistic understanding as to how you could tap into their power. Touch their hair. This is, this is, we have documents that tell us this. Touch the hair. This contact with the saliva or their clothes. This woman seems to have something of a superstitious idea as to how Jesus works. She just wants to lay hold of the power and be done with it. And, and it's interesting to note here how Jesus responds to both of them with the desperate need and the defective faith. You know, neither one of them have any claims that they can make on Jesus. No way. It's not like they can say, hey, you know, we went to the same school, um, we grew up in the same town, uh, we're part of the same fraternity, sorority, you know, whatever. Um, my daddy knew your daddy, you know, that, that, that kind of thing. Um, there's no basis or claim. In fact, it's, it's not just that they have nothing to bring, they have a deficit to bring. The need, the, the, the desperate need, and the defective faith. And how, like, like us. Hello. The desperate need and the defective faith. And how does Jesus respond? There's not a word of correction. This is not the time for that. He loves them and cares for them in a profound way. I don't, I don't know how many of you um, have heard someone say these words to, to you. Um, you know, you really can't go there looking like that. Um... Mothers have a reputation. I've never, my mom, I don't think ever said this, at least to my knowledge. Um, maybe yours did. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. It would be too embarrassing, especially if your mother's here. But, you know, that, that the kind of thing where it's like, no, you can't go on a road trip with underwear like that because, you know, if you're in an accident and the EMTC, I mean, it's really just going to be. And I'm, I'm thinking, I, really? In that situation, my skivvies, I hope, are the last thing on their mind as they're patching me back together. Yeah, you heard me use the word skivvies. I, in my manuscript, I had to look up to see how to spell that, actually. But anyway. Um, so the, but I think that's the mentality that sometimes we carry to Jesus in terms of our approach to him. I've got to have my act together before I can come to him. I've got to get things right before I go to him. Oh, my friend, don't you know that coming to him like that is actually the only way to come to him without the pretense? And that's the only way you're going to be made right, which, by the way, is by him. I mean, that beautiful old hymn, that, that line by um, uh, Joseph Hart uh, third or fourth line in the hymn, Come ye weary, heavy, laden, bruised, and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, better, you will never come at all. 
Not the righteous, not the righteous. The song goes on. The love of Jesus is exceeding in its kindness. Oh my goodness, we need to let that shape our expectations. Okay, but there's one more. And this is the least obvious, but if you notice some things here that trouble you and bug you, then this may, it may hit you, it may resonate with you. Um, it's not just that Jesus' love is exceeding in its power and exceeding in its kindness. It is also exceeding in mystery. And by that I mean this. He doesn't always give us what we want. He's always looking past that, beyond that, to give us better. Something deeper, something much more necessary than we envision. And for that reason, I say the, the love of Jesus is exceeding in, in mystery. Think with me about the intolerable delay that Jairus experiences that day. The absolutely intolerable delay that this father, this desperate father, is feeling over the course of, of the hours as these events unfold. Now, Matthew, just as a quick aside, compresses what uh, Mark and Luke relate to us in the parallel accounts. It's, it's rather interesting. Mark tells us, relays all these events to us. It takes Mark 23 verses. Matthew compresses it down into nine. So what we have here is an abbreviated, truncated, cliff notes version of, of the events as described. Not to say you know, Matthew gets it wrong, not in any way, but what he's doing here is that in terms of the description of this girl and her state, what he's saying at the start is um, he describes her condition as being that which was true by the time Jesus got there. Meaning, she's not just dying, she's dead. In Matthew's account, and the way he sums it up. And uh, that plays into the anxiety that he has to be feeling when he leaves and his daughter is dying, and he's called for the mourners and, and all of that. He knows that there can be no delay. You gotta under think, well, how, you're him. There can be, we've got to hurry. We've got to move. Where is Jesus? I've got to find him. There he is. Okay, please come. Please come. Let's hurry. Let's not stop. Let's not pause. We've got to go. We can't delay. A delay will be disastrous. And what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't just allow for a delay. He invites it by stopping in the course of things, to care for this woman. I mean, Jairus' daughter's condition is rather acute. It's now or never. I mean, this woman, I'm not trying to play her suffering down, but it's 12 years. It can go on another day if I'm Jairus. That sounds crass, but you know, when you're a desperate father, that's the way you'll think. And Jesus delays. Jesus delays. And you have the woman. She encounters not so much an intolerable delay, but an embarrassing response in terms of how Jesus responds to her. You know, all she wants is to touch, be healed, and gone. She wants to be in, she wants to be out, she wants to be done. She's accustomed, at least for 12 years, to thinking of herself as an outcast, as the misfit of the community. She's not looking for a relationship. She's not looking for attention. She just wants to be in, out, done, healed. And what does Jesus do? In the best, most redeeming sense, he calls her out. He calls attention 
to her that her attention might then really be on him. Look what you see there in verse uh, uh, 22. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Take heart, daughter, it's not magic. It's faith in me. It's through faith in me you are being healed. And that then sets in motion what we can only assume is a relationship with her Savior. Um, Jesus gives here so much more than she is expecting. But she has to go through so much more to get that. You see? He wants to give her so much more than she is expecting. But she's going to have to go through, like Jairus, so much more to get what he intends to give her. Jesus does not have the same sense of timing that we do. Cultures are like that. If you've been to, you know, left this Western American culture and gone overseas somewhere, or even sometimes some regions of the country, frankly. Um, I, I had a hankering for uh, some, some Mediterranean food a couple weeks ago, and there's a new place down by Austin P. the Mediterranean Grill, um, I was re I really been wanting some shawarma and some falafel because of that trip I took to Israel a couple years ago, and I haven't had any good stuff really since. Read a review, heard about it, went down there, decided to get a menu, and figured, well, while I'm here, I'm going to get a Turkish coffee. And uh, so I asked, that, said to the waitress, "Hey, you know, could I have one to go?" And the the lady, the owner of the place, who I think is from Syria, I believe, um, heard me, and she said, "Oh, are you sure?" Are you sure you want it to go? I mean, you, you really this is you really need to sit down and savor this and enjoy it. She was right. I did. She was right. But see, I mean, cultures are different. Their sense of timing. Oh my goodness! How much more the living God in ours in terms of a sense of timing. You know, well, what that means is that, that there are some things in terms of how he's working in our lives that are just not going to be rushed. He is not going to be hurried. It's just not going to happen. You're not going to hurry God with your brilliant plan. It just does not work that way. And what that means is because he is so determined, stubbornly, beautifully determined to bring out the best in our lives, what that means is sometimes these things are going to take stages to unfold, which will defy our timetable. Uh, there are times in which we are not going to get the relief we want in an immediate way because of his timetable. And we need to know that. We desperately need to know that lest we fall into the trap of thinking like this. God's not doing the work I want, when I want, how I want. Therefore, he must not really have this. So therefore, I need to take control. You see the leaps of logic that we're making here. Now, few of us would probably articulate that and say it aloud. We'd be too embarrassed. But I promise you, I and all of us do that all the time. 
And it comes out. We betray our convictions, our deepest convictions in all kinds of ways. Um, it comes out in our sleepless nights. It comes out in our despair. It comes out in our complaining spirits. It comes out in our bitterness and anger towards others and Him. It comes out. It just does. It can't be hidden. It just does. It comes out in the compromises that we will make. The compromises of our ethics, the choices that we will make, because God can't handle it, so I'm going to have to take it in my hands and do it my way. It comes out in our beliefs. Oh, we assent to the creeds. Yes. But in practice, we will synthesize. We will become syncretists. Yeah, a little bit of Christianity here, but I'm going to bring in some other stuff because it's not really doing it all for me. Now, if you know anything about the history of the Old Testament, how did that work out for Israel? That syncretistic approach to things. It doesn't end well. It never does. It can't. Because it's mixing truth with lie. And that will not play out. It can't. The love of Christ is exceeding in its mystery. Not just in its power, not just in its kindness, but in its mystery. We need to let that shape our expectations. Now the rub of that, I'm going to wrap this up, the rub with all of that is sometimes the exceeding nature of his love is, is so far and so alien to us, we wonder, is it even real? Let me tell you a story. Um, true story. Father Damien. Father Damien was a uh, Catholic priest who volunteered, who, who asked specifically, to be sent uh, to a leper colony to serve there on the Molokai Island in Hawaii back in 1873. At that time, there were no medical doctors. There were no priests serving the colony. Um, Father Damien uh, recognized it just was a burden upon his heart that there would be any man or woman who would suffer the last days of their life in isolation with no one to care for them. So he was determined to go to that leper colony and serve those people. And that's exactly what he did. He gave himself to the needs there. He would uh, clothe them, dress them, bathe them, and their festering ulcers. He would build the coffins and dig the graves. He would counsel and pray with them and lead them in worship. And that's what he did doggedly for 12 years. And then one Sunday... He stood before his people and pulled apart his robe so that they could see the beginnings of leprosy on his own body. And this, these were the first words of the sermon that morning. We lepers. Now the 12 years prior to that, those people were convinced that Father Damien appreciated their suffering. Now they knew he knew it. Now they knew he had entered deeply into the life of that colony in a way that he could not have before. Here's what we need to know. Jesus has fully entered into the colony, into life in this fallen world. He's present, fully present, and he fully Knows He has not kept his love at a distance, but he has proven his intent to make new and reclaim this whole world 
and us as well. And he has also shown forth in his life and death, lived and died in our behalf, that he can be trusted as we wait. He is with us. He knows it. And he's bringing about nothing short of the best. We can look to him. We can rely on him. We can trust him. His love is exceeding. Exceeding. May we let that shape our expectations. Let's pray. Lord, um, your followers there and then needed to know these things, and your followers